The title of our message today is Under Pressure, Under Pressure. And yeah, I've heard someone whispering there. They're probably remembering the catchy tune on the, in the 80s. Um, though I was born in the 80s, I wasn't familiar with that song until recently that I heard it. And yeah, I am not going to sing it, but the song by David Bowie and Queen reflects how the world perceives being under the pressures of life. The lines go this way, um, quote, pressure pushing down on me, pressure pushing on, down on you. No man ask for under pressure that brings a building down, it splits a family in two, puts people on streets. To be honest, though, we are in 2023, we know that people still think in the same way that it is the pressure, the pressures that cause us to break down, to have families apart. It is pressure, that's what they sing, it's the pressure. The singer continues, quote, it is the terror of knowing what this world is about, watching some good friends screaming, let me out. He continues, pray tomorrow gets me higher, higher, high. Pressure on people, pressure on streets. Turned away from outer law like a blind man. Sat on the fence, but it don't work. Keep coming with love, but so is slashed and torn. Why, why, why? Love insanity laughs under pressure we're breaking. Can't we give ourselves one more chance? In his solutions, the singer expressed his wishful thinking for better days, maybe some numbing of senses, even with drugs, just being high. Or maybe the right plain out indifference, I don't care anymore. But wait a minute. He realizes that the pressure has more to do with his self-love than what is going outside. He concludes, quote, And love dares you to care for the people on the edge of the night, and love dares you to change our way of caring about ourselves. This is our last dance, he says. This is our last dance. This is ourselves under pressure, under pressure, pressure. Well, uh, today in our text, we will be challenged to answer, what do you do when you are under pressure? I want to challenge the thinking that pressures of life causes us to make poor choices, that hardships squeeze us right into the inevitable decisions, which will greatly impact our lives for good. My fellow Christian, are we pushed so hard as to have no escape? Hopefully, we don't get into the victimized understanding of pressure that the world offers. But how do we understand the role of this inevitable pressure that presses on us all? In our text today, we'll see how God's people, under the leadership of their new established king, Saul, responded under pressure. And more specifically, how this new appointed leader forfeited his dynasty for caving in under pressure. 
So open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. And we'll read um, until verse 7, and we'll come back to it, the rest of the text, until verse 15. And we'll cover that on the following weeks, the rest of the chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, and it says, Saul was 30 years old when he, became, when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan, Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. The people were, were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now, the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. They came up and camped in Michmash, east of Bat-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and in thickets and in cliffs and in cellars and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Let's pray. God, Father, we come before you with um, thankfulness in our hearts for the fellowship that we have with one another, and for your words that are sufficient to give us direction in everything in life. Lord, that we understand that both the Old Testament and the New Testament has great teaching for us even today. Lord, may we look back to the circumstances in the life of your people Israel and learn and be admonished and to be encouraged to think rightly about pressures and about circumstances of life. Father, I pray that you would use your word to feed your people, to strengthen them and to encourage them to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, as we meditate on these things to find confidence in you and to be transformed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have um, notes there, I have put an outline with the cross-references. Um, if you don't, we can have someone, can raise your hand, and someone can walk to you and bring those notes there. All right, anyone with missing notes? All right, good. Everybody got it. Um, so in our series, we have been studying that the Lord is the one who raises up kings. So I'm going to give you a little bit of review here. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, um, Hannah has this song, and she really sets up the tone for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7. 
you, you will see this whole thing of God humbling the proud and exalting the humble. It says, the Lord makes the poor rich, and he brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the, from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them seat with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. Now, you will see here the Lord is sovereign over every single event in the life of humankind. He says he keeps... He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in the darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail, and we'll see a lot of mighty people in Samuel that does not prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder from the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. So we have seen this happening already. The Lord deposing the house of Eli from priesthood. And then um, he's thundering from, from heavens to declare to his people to fear him. And the, this whole anointing of a king. So this is the first time in the history of God's people that they, are, um, they have a king. So I, I got here a little picture from um, a relief that is in uh, a museum in Egypt, in a, a temple. And you, you see that they're anointing a king. It was a very uh, common element, even in the ancient Near East, that they used to anoint a king. And it's basically to show the empowerment of, of that king by the divinities. So I'll give you a little summary also on the history of Israel um, um, it's, I, I really appreciate this chart because a lot of people don't know that Samuel was contemporary with Samson um, during the time of Judges. They were in different regions of Israel, but they were contemporary. And Eli and, and the priests, really, they're all, all of these judges got uh, deposed, and Samuel was the last of the judges and also this transitional person um, to the monarchy. And then eventually we'll have Saul as the first king and then David. Now, I just wanted to put that into perspective that the way of living, the time of judges is still very much describes the way that the Israelites were living. Remember Judges 21, 25? In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right on their own eyes. So here, also, we see this expectation for a king, not any king, not a king like the nations, but a king who would remind them that any earthly authority is subjected to God. So we've seen the victory that Saul experienced last week, and we also saw that the Lord said, you know, you need to fear God. It is not a king that is your source of security, of comfort, it is not idols, but the one true king. And the earthly king that you have here, he's in subjection to the heavenly king. As we see in Eli's failure, we sign with disgust on how dirty leaders can play. With Samson, there is a glimmer of hope for deliverance from the Philistines, but his story ends up poorly. 
And eventually, we are now given a king, but things don't seem to be very encouraging. There is still a search for a king, a good king, a godly king. Start our account in verse 1 here. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 40, 42 years. This is kind of a new formula that you will see with the next 17 kings, other kings that Israel and Judah will have. The author marked this transition into a discussion of, of the core events of the king's activities by inserting a chronological note containing the king's age at the time of his ascension to the throne as well as the duration of the reign. Now, um, I want to point to you that um, the text of 1 Samuel in the original Hebrew, um, it, it's a, a text that has difficulties, that had difficulties on his transmissions, in its transmission. So you will see on the side of your Bible that sometimes when you see a word in italics, that it, there were different manuscripts of the Old Testament in Hebrew that didn't agree with each other. They had missing parts. And this is one of them that is quite problematic. So, but let me uh, uh, clarify here to you. The Hebrew text regarding Saul, if you look at it, a side note in your Bible, it probably has a number one and then a number two where it says 30 and then 42. Uh, in the original, it literally has Saul was the son of a year or one year old when he became king and then he ruled two years over Israel. As you notice in your Bible translation in ASV, we're faced with the challenge of this chapter because it says he was 30 years and where is that coming from? There's two observations here. One in the Masoretic text is where we get the majority of our um, Hebrew um, you know, parts of the Bible that are put together. That's the Masoretic text. It's the most reliable manuscripts of the Old Testament and the, you know, the more recent ones, the well-copied ones. A number appears to have dropped out right on those two numbers of the Hebrew texts. Now, some versions of the Septuagint, which is the translation of the Hebrew text to the Greek, would have the numbers 30, and that's why we, we put it in there. Um, and other will, others will omit it altogether. Now, some scholars have suggested that the gaps occurred during the transmission in the text. An ancient manuscript might have, becoming, have become illegible, perhaps due to a worn eating or a frailed condition um, that resulted from overuse. In any case, um, different explanations came to, to explain that, and uh, there is a Jewish scholar, David Kimchi, from the medieval time. It means that a year has elapsed since the stages of Saul's inauguration, because he has just become king, and that's why he's referring to the beginning of that. So neither Saul, age, or the length of the rage is stated here. So it's, it's a lot of speculation, but we have the New Testament that kind of enlightens us to what might have happened there. Acts chapter, 12, Acts, Acts chapter 13, verse 2. Paul is giving some directions here. And, you know, even in the first century, um, later on in history, in the second century, Josephus writes about um, this period of time that Saul was a king, and he gives different age gaps for, for Saul. So Acts chapter 13, verse 21, um, Paul says that then they asked for a king, 
referring to the people of Israel, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So he's just giving a round number for the 40 years. So that's why our Nazbi translation uses he reigned over 42 years in Israel. This represents an attempt to realign the text with Acts 13.21. So, in any case, if you watched uh, a video that I sent um, to the, the church directory, it gives you some understanding of how these texts are copied and how God preserved his word throughout um, the ages. You would see that um, even this small uh, problem in, in the text has no impact in the theological or doctrinal points of First Samuel. In fact, we can have confidence that even this small omission in the Hebrew text does not jeopardize our confidence in the reliability of our Bible in its text transmission. We are tremendously blessed to have trust in a God who preserved his word for over 3,000 years of biblical history. So, just wanted to give you this little uh, side note here. Let's move on to verse 2. We read here that Saul organizes an extending army by choosing 3,000 men of Israel, no doubt because of their, their military aptitude. Men were prepared for war, ready for fighting, and then he gets the remaining of the military men and he sends them home and like a backup. The people, the word people here, it's primarily describing now the army. And then uh, when it says that he sent everyone to his tent, it's an idiom for dispersing of the soldiers, whether by thoughtful, deliberate dismissal, you know, or just, we're not necessary here, you can just uh, leave, we have enough. Or when he says that they all left for their home, it means that they lost the war. This is an expression that we're going to see studying for Samuel from here on. Saul forms his man into two divisions. One is stationed with himself, 6.8 miles north of Jerusalem. Got a map here to help you with that. Um, so the, there's a campaign there. You see Saul forces on the, on the north side, and they are uh, there at Michmash, and is strategically situated in a valley running from the hill country down to the Jordan. So you see the Jordan River. Let me see if I have a pointer here. Um, all right, over there. So the Jordan River here, and then um, Saul is on the, in the north area, and then in Geba, we have Jonathan's forces. Um, the second division is commanded by Saul's son, Jonathan. He just mentioned here, is not told us who he's, this Jonathan guy. Later on in verse 16, we'll, we'll learn that he is Saul's son. The smaller division is stationed at Gibeah of Benjamin. So, right, Gibeah of Benjamin or Geba, because we have two cities there. Remember, there's um, Geba, maybe the other one, we'll see here. Yeah, there you go. Um, we have Geba um, and then Gideon of Saul, Gibeon of Saul. I remember there were, when I was studying for my geography test, I had to remember, it was like Gibeon, Geba, no, Gibeon, Gibeah of Saul and Geba. I was like, boy, that's hard to remember, but... One is in the south and the other is in the north. That's all that you need to know. So, verse 3. Saul obviously views his measures as defensive. Um, 
and does not anticipate any immediate action from the Philistines. However, at some point, Jonathan displays his proactive disposition, taking the sort of action that Saul is reluctant to engage. He doesn't seem to be a very good military leader, but his son is. This similarly guerrilla-type action, he defeats. Um, Verse 3 says that Jonathan smote the garrison, and he literally means that he struck them, he defeated them at that region of Geba. Um, It does not take very long for the Philistines to hear about this challenge to control in face of their inevitable reprisals. So Saul blew the trump throughout all the land to mobilize the nation. All right, we have teased the Philistines. Now they're going to come after us. You better come to help. So this trumpet thing, let me see. It's uh, a trumpet in ancient Israel. It's the word shofar for... It's basically a ham's ram's horn whose harsh and piercing note was used to incite a military action. Heralds are sent throughout the land to summon the, the reserve troops with the announcement, let the Hebrews hear. Kind of an interesting word choice here because Hebrews was like a derogatory term that the uh, Gentiles used to refer to the Jewish people. So for Saul to be saying that, um, it, it's like, you know, it would be like an American saying, speaking of themselves about, you know, talking about gringos, referring to themselves, like, like the gringos here. Like, no, it's, it's you guys, you know. So he might possibly just be quoting the Philistines. That's what we believe it is happening here. They are enraged and they're coming after us. Be aware Verse 4, although the defeat of the Philistine garrison is achieved by Jonathan, the victory is attributed to Saul, the commanded-in-chief. It says that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines. He takes the credit for what Jonathan had done. And it says that the people also hear that the news that they have become a stench to the Philistines, an offensive odor requiring speedy treatment. Gilgal then was the suitable place for to mass an army. Gilgal, I think it's in the other map here, it's on this green region here. We don't know exactly the location of Gilgal, but because um, Moses talks about it being on the other side of the Jordan, this is probably the location. It was kind of a place of memory for them. They, every time they wanted to renew their covenant, they would go back to Gilgal and think, God for doing that, for preserving them, for taking care of them. So it was also in a strategic place. It was kind of too far from all the, the Philistine cities here in the coast that would have come all the way up here. All right. So also where Samuel had this earlier occasion instructed by Saul to go and wait for him before engaging in warfare. So if you go back to chapter 10, verse 8. Chapter 10, verse 8. Um, Samuel gives instruction for, for Saul after he, got, he was anointed to be the king that kind of sets the precedent from how they should operate anytime there is a military action in view. It says in verse 8 here, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice and peace offerings, and you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show what you should do. So 
Basically, what Samuel is saying here is, yes, you are king. You are put in charge by God to care for, you, for his people and protect them and lead them in the military, but God is still in charge, and you should wait for his instruction on what you should do next. So on verse 5, moving on, uh, to quell this Israelite rebellion, the Philistines assembled a massive army. We read here that they assembled the fight 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. Some translations use 3,000 instead of uh, 6,000. And you know, it's one of those numbers that is not as uh, clear. But in any case, it is a large number. As you read the description here, it says that the people like sand, which is on the seashore, they were in abundance. So the this word horsemen, um, it's shown here in a picture. It's where those uh, who drive the chariots, not the cavalry like we think, who fought on horseback. Those are the chariots they used to ride. Though uh, chariots were a little value in hill country as they require level terrain to operate effectively. Their present represents a form of intimidation. Now, I, I have a picture here of the terrain there. So you see, driving those chariots on a hill is not very wise, right? It is basically a form of intimidation. Next week, we'll see that they are really in trouble here in Israel because they have no weapons to fight these Philistines. But just so you know, uh, those chariots weren't very valuable <laughs> in the mountains. The troops here, it's an instance that refers to the infantry, were like the sand on the, the, like the sand on the seashore. It's a common Hebrew idiom for a number too large to compute. And they came up all the way from the coastal plain here to the hill country to attack the Philistines. Now, as I was reading this account, you know, of the, the Philistines' reactions to the attack, I just had this uh, childhood memories, you know, that all of a sudden hit me. You see, when you're kids, you, you, you know, you, you do things, there are things that shouldn't scare you, but really gives you the creeps, the creeps. while there are other things that you should fear, but for you, it's just a mere thrill. Well, one of these things were the Brazilian bees for me. You know, my cousin Philippe and I, we were partners in crime, and we would have a lot of fun climbing trees and picking up cashew fruits and mangoes in the trees. But the thing that we enjoyed the most was more than the taste of the fresh piece of fruit, there was something more exciting. It was with messing up with the bees' nests. It was a thrill. Like, we would poke at the hive and then run full steam ahead as fast as our legs would carry us. We would look at the hive and think, oh, but there's just a handful of bees over there. They're not really a big deal. As you can see, let's, let's just see it. Let's just poke at it and see it. And so soon enough, dozens of them would instantly pop out of the hive, and the more we ran, it seemed to us there was a cloud of bees after us. How their numbers so rapidly multiplied we couldn't tell you, but sure enough, we had these things to tell you <laughs> that they felt to us as numerous as the sand on the seashore in multitude. But my childhood panic cannot even compare to what the Israelites are facing here and see their reactions. It says that they start 
um, hiding and, and thinking of every possible nook and cranny to hide themselves from the Philistines. I remember going through, when I was there in Israel, they had this, um, literally, it was just a, a hole uh, in the ground, and they had this um, huge cave inside that they dug during the Roman period of time, so I kind of seem, think it was probably similar to what they have, and were basically crawling to get to the you know, larger part where you could hide. But I, I remember just being in panic, and you know, thankfully we had a bunch of people, and the professor was there with us, but I was just being scared of being in that closed you know, hole in the ground. It says here that they were in a straight. It's a metaphor drawn for being in a narrow place, like those caves that I was crawling in, described being under pressure from all sides, while the Expression hard-pressed shows that they were unable to organize an effective response to the threat they face. In other words, they were trapped and stuck. Individuals seek safety by hiding on many dens and holes to be found in rocky terrain, and these cellars were cavities constructed underground, more like what I had um, crawled into, while the pits were dug out of the rock to act as reservoirs for rainwater. They were basically cisterns. All right? Now, verse 7 says that they, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. So they went uh, to Gilgal to be where Saul was. The Jordan acted as this natural obstacle against the Philistine incursion in those areas. Saul has gone to supervise the gathering at Gilgal and to prepare it to engage the Philistines who loyally responded to Saul's order um, are apprehensive of the Philistines' power and resources. They lack the confidence in Saul and they lack the confidence in the Lord. Even though they just had a huge victory uh, in, over Ammon as we studied chapter 11, so before we move our narrative, in our narrative here, I do want to take a point of reflection. Many a times we might feel hard-pressed with trials. And though our country is not being actively attacked by an army or a military force is after us, we all know the familiarity with the, we're all familiar with the feeling hard-pressed this is no news for the believer of any age. In Psalm 34, 19, it states that many are the afflictions of the righteous. And in attempting to encourage his disciples, Jesus plainly told them, in the world, you will have tribulation. Suffering, trials, and tribulation is part of living in a sin-cursed world. And yet, Jesus is encouraging them in that in their sense of peace, shouldn't be based on an outward circumstantial security, but on the assurance that Christ has overcome the world. How else do you think that the Apostle Paul and Silas could sing hymns in jail knowing that that might be their last night being alive? How could they have this confidence? Well, let's read here from Paul's own account what he experienced in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Leave your finger there in 1 Samuel and just move here real quick to the New Testament. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're looking at verses 23 and through 29. Paul is trying to argue with the Corinthians because they're trying to accuse him that he's not a good apostle. And he says, are they all servants of Christ? I speak as an insane more also, more so in far more labors. And then he's going to describe all the things he went through. In more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. And I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul knew really well what was like to be under pressure, not only on the outside, but on the inside. The concern he had for the churches and the other members. Now, how do we, you know, I, how... Why Paul didn't feel anxious or in despair in the circumstances? You know, some people might object that he, oh, but he was the Apostle Paul. Um, he wasn't anxious, he never despaired of anything. Well, switch, uh, just turn back the pages to chapter 1 of Second Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. Some translations say that we were in despair, um, so that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul was such in a perilous situation here in Asia that he thought, you know, this is it. We're going to die. There's nothing we can do about it. Much, much more like what the Israelites were facing. And I said, you know, we can't rely on ourselves. We only have God to trust, and that's whom we're going to trust. The apostolic perspective also agrees with Peter's exhortation to the church in 1 Peter 4, 12, and 13. Uh, if you want to open there, but I, I'll just read it for you here. Peter exhorts the church, you know, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. We're all being tested as though some strange thing were happening to you. you know, I, I talk to people, it's like, where's that coming from? I don't know, where is that coming from? Well, this is not a strange thing happening to you. It is expected. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing 
so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice in exaltation. Peter is telling them to stop being surprised with the pressure of persecution. Now this is far from having a pessimistic outlook in life, but a realistic one that rests on the faith of a sovereign care over of God's sovereign care over his own. All right, now that we have seen the pressure building up on Saul and the Israelites, let's see what the pressure revealed, what this pressure revealed on them. We have a confrontation with God's prophet. So back to 1 Samuel, then starting on verse 8. It says that, So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the... Oh, sorry, I am on verse in chapter 5. <laughs> First uh, Samuel chapter 13 says, Now he waited seven days, he, talking about Saul, according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Delivering Israel from the Philistine is a, du- is a duty assigned um, divinely to Saul. But all Israelite warfare warfare must acknowledge that the Lord's role in it. There was an appointed time for Samuel. Remember what we read in chapter 10, verse 8? That was kind of the the formula. You know, you wait seven days in Gilgal. That's the deal. You're going to get instruction from the Lord then. So designated to allow him to come and to dedicate the army by sacrificing before battle and to issue Saul with divine instructions for the conflict. So it seems likely that this instruction was a restatement of this stipulation early on chapter 10, verse 8. Saul presumably sent word to Samuel, but he does not come. Possibly his movements are obstructed by the Philistine presence. You know, you think about um, Samuel is there all the way down there in the south and having to pass by Michmash, that's where now the the Philistines are encamped while Saul is in Gilgal. So potentially, he couldn't get there so easy. However, as Saul waits, he soon sees his fear, fearful recruits beginning to desert. Saul resolves to act without waiting any longer for Samuel. Verse 9 says that Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering to the Lord he offered, um, he offered the burnt offering. Saul resolves acts without any longer, for, waiting any longer for Samuel. And, and Sam, some argue that Samuel does not arrive within the specified time, but this seems unlikely. By using the precise wording, you know, wait for seven days, and then identifying the time set by Samuel, the narrator emphasized, seems to emphasize that Saul does indeed wait for the specified time. Saul's statement in verse 11, when he's talking to Samuel, says that within the appointed days. So he did wait for the days that um, it was appointed by Samuel. Saul's sin is not that he offers the sacrifice prematurely because he does wait until, um, wait for the set time by Samuel. He's up. His sin is that he disrespects Samuel's authority by offering the sacrifice himself. In 
chapter 10, verse 8, Samuel makes clear that he himself is the one who will offer the sacrifice and give Saul his orders. Samuel's earlier statement does not imply that a tardy arrival gives Saul the authority to do as he pleases. That's sheer presumption born out of panic. We can only imagine Saul's reasoning. You know, I've already tried doing God's way. I waited for his prophet, even for the waited time. He didn't show up. People are deserting. There's too much pressure. I'll just do my way. I'll just do the way that I know, and I'll do my way. Verse 10. As soon as... He finished offering the burnt sacrifice, the burnt offering. Behold, Samuel came. Would you expect that? Samuel went out to meet him and to greet him. Now, I'll give you here the, the word for, for greeting is he, you know, if you look at the side note in your Bible, it literally means he blessed him. And only see Saul has this religious facade about himself. I mean, he, it's going to come out again in chapter 15. Oh, blessed be the servant of the Lord. He came for the sacrifice. And you see Samuel's response is immediate to him. What have you done? No sooner that the burnt offering being sacrificed, Samuel arrives, arrives here. It's just a picture of, of this Saul insecure leader. Samuel's abrupt response conveys a strong disapproval. What have you done? Taken aback, Saul's claims to have acted reasonably with the circumstance. I only did what the circumstance demanded. See his response, chapter 8, verse 11. And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come on the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, therefore I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked for the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I couldn't do it. I was just struggling with it, but I had to do it. I forced myself and I did it. I offered the burnt offering. Now, mind you, look at his response here. Very Blame shifting to what really happened um, in Hebrew. It's one thing that you, you couldn't pick up here on the on 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 English translation. Normally in Hebrew, you have the verb and you have the subject, you, right? You've done this, you didn't come. So when, whenever you bring the subject before the verb, you really want to emphasize. So Samuel is, is sorry saying here to Samuel, it's because of you that I've done this. You've done this. You didn't come at the appointed time, and that's why I did it. It's really blame shifting, uh, bringing the, sh- the, the blame all the way to Samuel. Saul had not brought the Lord into the picture. Instead, he had looked only at his immediate circumstances, and he panicked, followed the plans that he devised himself. Saul judged the situation according to what he saw not by the faith in the Lord. Note this sharp sharp contrast between Saul here and Jonathan in verse chapter 14, 6. Saul is worried, you know, oh, we we have less people. The numbers are decreasing. I have to do something. This is happening. Let's see what Jonathan does in chapter 14 when he is 
It's just him and his armor bearer. I mean, Chu Man. <laughs> just Chu Man. I think this is one of the coolest stories in the Bible. We, we're going to see it next time. But see what Jonathan says here in verse 6 of chapter 14. Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor and says, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. You know, God can do this. He might not. He's putting it. If God would do this, he can bless us. But the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. It doesn't matter the number of soldiers that we have with us. What it matters is that God can save with few people, with a lot of people. He is the one behind the battle. That was the confidence that Jonathan had that his father didn't. In verse 12, we'll see the consequences here of what really happens with, um, well, obviously what uh, Saul said that he he did, why he did what he did, I said, relates to Saul. He said to himself, that is, he thought to himself that the Philistines were going to come against him to Gilgal. So I forced myself, might mean that his conscience told him not to, but he went and did it anyhow. Remember, probably that is, was a difficult decision to make, but he made it. Many express sympathy for Saul's conduct facing this predicament. How else should a commander-in-chief behave in a rapidly deteriorating situation? Can we sympathize with that? But Saul is not the commander-in-chief, mind you. See, the answer that Jonathan gave, the Lord is. Saul, this is a commentator, he says, Saul sees only a religious ritual to be performed before the battle. Why are we doing this anyway? Might as well just get it done away with. He seeks divine blessing for what he will do, but sees no need for divine guidance as to what he should do. Just want to seek the Lord, you know, let's get get this done with, so I can get on and go with the battle. But he's not really seeking the Lord's guidance on how he should go to battle. Verse 13, we finally read Samuel's response. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept the command, the Lord, what the Lord has commanded you. Samuel's focus on his inappropriate authority structure, the appropriate authority structures, in recognition who is in overall charge. It is in this that the covenant kingship diverges from the secular concepts of kingship the kings like the other nations who was in charge they were they were at the top of command the king according to god's heart god is at the top of command and he acknowledges and humbly submits to him the command that 
was disobeyed, is connected not with the sacrificial procedure, but with the constitutional arrangements, governorship, Saul's kingship um, under the Lord. While the king is responsible for conducting military action, the prophet, as the Lord's commissioner, is to communicate divine approval or disapproval. Saul has overstepped the mark by thinking ritual observance would make up for acting without explicit divine sanction. He was crossing boundaries here. He was called to be a king, not a priest. For then, literally introduces here an implied condition. Um, he could have, have a dynasty established for himself. If Saul had displayed due obedience to the principles of a theocratic constitution, rather than to cave in the pressure of the circumstance, his dynasty would have been made permanent. And that really, I think, bums me out when I read 1 Samuel. Because you read Jonathan. I mean, he's king material. He's a faithful servant. He's a loyal friend. And you think, bummer, he could have been a king. By disregarding the terms of the covenant kingship, Saul has forfeited his right to retain the office. You know, kingship is a prone to such subtle and not so subtle pride, this presumption to act on his own accord. James IV of Scotland was notoriously rude when attending worshiping services. In one occasion, he was seated in his gallery with several courtiers while Robert Bruce preached. He was a preacher in the congregation. And in his usual form, James began to talk to those around him during the sermon. And the preacher would pause. The silence would happen there, see if he would realize what he was doing. The minister resumed, and so did James. He started talking again. Bruce ceased to speak in a second time. And then... He stopped talking again. When the king committed the third offense, Bruce turned and addressed James directly. He looked at the king and said, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. I mean, talk about putting someone in his place. Kings easily forget that they are subjects. There is no authority that was put into place if it wasn't put by God. They can ignore that the true king's decrees, either obnoxiously or blatantly like James and quietly or subtly like Saul. In any case, Samuel primarily charged Saul with disobedience to Yahweh. It is his pride that presumed that his way, my way, was better than God's way. You see, Israel had a king, but their king was doing what was wise on his own eyes, just like the judges. Saul's presumptuous taking on a priestly role is a perfect illustration of Proverbs twelve fifteen. I'm going to read this proverb. This uh, references in Proverbs here um, and following your Bible, but you have it noted there if you want to take a look later. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right on his own eyes, but a wise man 
is he who listens to counsel. We are encouraged to listen carefully to this warning. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Do not be wise on your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What kind of evil is he talking about here? The evil of thinking that we know better than God. That's pride as its finest. Isaiah also agrees with Solomon in Proverbs when Isaiah chapter 5, 21, he says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Why? They think they got it when they don't. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man wise on his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Because of the circumstances, Saul forfeited his own dynasty. The Lord is bringing a successor, a man that will be according to his own heart. And, and mind you, here he's not using the language of, of king. It says that um, the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. The Lord had appointed for himself a ruler. I think I explained this word before. A neged is not a king. He's under a king, though he's a ruler. He receives the title of a king, but really he's a king subjected to the higher king, the king of kings, the Lord himself. Samuel leaves Saul, verse 15 here, then Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Saul is in desperate straits. He returns to Gibeah with just 600 men. It's just a very sad scenario. For those who might be thinking that this is only a minor offense, not a big deal that Saul committed and I just want to emphasize that it is the nature, not the extent of the offense that is significant. I'll give you the example of, of Moses. The man just hit a rock, for goodness sake. He spent 40 years in the wilderness with the people, and he's not allowed to enter the land. Just a little hitting the rock forfeited the right of getting to the land. What about the triviality of just eating a small piece of fruit? Just a small piece of fruit. Whole humanity. You see, Saul lets himself to be driven under the pressure to act against explicit directions concerning how the covenant king should rule over God's people. Some might object that it's a real unfairness in that David will do things much worse than what Saul did. And yet, he's given an enduring dynasty. At one level, this should be attributed to a sovereignty of God's grace. That is the Lord's grace that David was given that was not because he deserved it. All have sinned and are justly under divine condemnation. It is God's prerogative to choose some and bring them to himself as a matter not of justice, but electing love. God chose him. At another level, it must be pointed out that David, though David sinned, his reaction when he was rebuked, it's not to blame others, but to admit his fault and cast himself on God's mercy. While David will indeed often lose sight of his commitment to God, his inner loyalty is latent, not absent, and subsequently displayed in repentance. All right, let's close our, our message here. I have a few 
um, things to, to lessons that I, we want to take from this, this text. One is nothing outside us, no pressures can cause us to sin. But rather, our inner desires drive our actions. See Proverbs 18, 1, 2, and says, you, um, the pressure didn't cause Saul to cave into disobedience, but his inner disposition to be set on his way. Proverbs 18, 2 describes this progression that leads Saul to act the way he did. So let's go there. Proverbs 18, 1. I'm not going to read all of the passages here, but this one is a good one for us. It says that he who separates himself, other translation says, he who isolates himself seeks his own desires and he quarrels against all sound wisdom. If you're caught in your own thinking, in your own way of thinking, there is no reasonable thought that will make to change your mind. A fool does not delight in understanding, doesn't care to listen, wisdom, but only in revealing his own mind. Mark 7, 21 um, says that from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. It is not the pressure. It is whatever is in your heart. That's what will come out when the pressures push it out. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted or enticed when he's carried away and enticed by his own desires. So no pressure can cause us to sin. Second, trials provide occasions for revealing our hearts. What pressures do is they bring to the surface what is in our hearts. But God always have a way of escape. Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says that God brought the people of Israel in the wilderness to test, to see, so they would know what was in their hearts. If they would keep God's commandment or not. When the pressure happened, what happened? They started complaining, they started grumbling. Just reveal what was in their hearts, a heart of ingratitude, a heart of not trusting the Lord. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 13 gives this hopeful, hopeful um, affirmation that there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as common to man. Pressures are common to man. They might put us in a position that it, it, it might be harder to obey God. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But with the temptation, he will provide what? A way of escape so that you might be able to endure it. God does not put us in a position that we can say no to sin. And then lastly, when your sin is confronted, the only way out is humble confession. Proverbs 28, 13. You see, Saul tried to cover up his sin, to blame shift, and things really didn't go well, did it? Proverbs 28, 13 says, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, 
we think that, you know, it wasn't really me. It was because of this. It was because of that person. This is why I'm angry. This is how I yelled at my wife. This is how I did this. No. Do not conceal it. That's not going to go well. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. That's why David is a much better king than Saul. Because in the moment he was confronted by his sin, with his sin, he confessed it and he acknowledged it. And he what? Finds mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that we do face trials, Lord. We live in a broken world that is filled with suffering and temptations and trials. And yet, you do not leave us in a place where we have no escape. You give us hope of forgiveness that even when we do sin, to find help. Lord, us teach, teach us to not be wise in our own eyes, but to be dependent on you. Let us to be instructed, to be humble, to acknowledge when we are caving into the pressure and give us the right disposition, Lord, to respond with faith. Faith in a God that will not leave us alone in temptation, but a God who is faithful and will not allow us to be tempted beyond our own strength, but will provide a way of escape. But I pray that we would take this message home to meditate during the week, to be strengthened when we are tempted to praise you and give thanks that you are faithful and you care for your own. In Jesus' name, amen.